Part Three of the Entale, in Weird Tales, Volume One, by E. T. A. Hoffman, translated by J. T. Bilby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. As soon as we arrived in K. Blank, my old uncle complained that he felt the effects of the wearying journey this time more than ever. His moody silence, broken only by violent outbreaks of the worst possible ill humor announced the return of his attacks of gout. One day I was suddenly called in. I found the old gentleman confined to his bed and unable to speak, suffering from a paralytic stroke. He held a letter in his hand, which he had crumpled up tightly in a spasmodic fit. I recognized the handwriting of the land steward of Arblanksitten, but quite upset by my trouble, I did not venture to take the letter out of the old gentleman's hand. I did not doubt that his end was near. But his pulse began to beat again even before the physician arrived the old gentleman's remarkably tough constitution resisted the mortal attack although he was in his seventieth year that selfsame day the doctor pronounced him out of danger we had a more severe winter than usual this was followed by a rough and stormy spring and hence it was more the gout a consequence of the inclemency of the season than his previous accident which kept him for a long time confined to his bed. During this period, he made up his mind to retire altogether from all kinds of business. He transferred his office of Dustacharius to others, and so I was cut off from all hope of ever again going to Arblanksitten. The old gentleman would allow no one to attend him but me, and it was to me alone that he looked for all amusement and every cheerful diversion and though in the hours when he was free from pain his good spirits returned and he had no lack of broad jests even making mention of hunting exploits so that i fully expected every minute to hear him make a butt of my heroic deed when i had killed the wolf with my winter yet never once did he allude to our visit to our blank sitting and as may well be imagined i was very careful from natural shyness not to lead him directly up to the subject my harassing anxiety and continual attendance upon the old gentleman had thrust Seraphina's image into the background. But as soon as his sickness abated somewhat, my thoughts returned with more liveliness to that moment in the Baroness's room, which I now looked upon as a star, a bright star, that had set, for me at least, forever. An occurrence which now happened, by making me shudder with an ice-cold thrill, as at sight of a visitant from the world of spirits, revived all the pain I had formerly felt. One evening, as I was opening the pocket-book, which I had carried whilst at Arblanksitten, there fell out of the papers I was unfolding a dark curl, wrapped about with a white ribbon. I immediately recognized it as Seraphina's hair, but on examining the ribbon more closely I distinctly perceived the mark of a spot of blood on it. Perhaps Adelheid had skilfully contrived to secrete it about me during the moments of conscious insanity by which I had been affected during the last days of our visit. But why was the spot of blood there? It excited forebodings of something terrible in my mind, and almost converted this too pastoral love token into an awful admonition, pointing to a passion which might entail the expenditure of precious blood. It was the same white ribbon that had fluttered about me in light wanton sportiveness, as it were, the first time I sat near Seraphina, and which mysterious night had stamped as an emblem of mortal injury. Boys ought not to play with weapons, 
with the dangerous properties of which they are not familiar. At last the storms of spring had ceased to bluster, and summer asserted her rights, and if the cold had formerly been unbearable, so now too was the heat when July came in. The old gentleman visibly gathered strength, and following his usual custom, went out to a garden in the suburbs. One still warm evening, as we sat in the sweet-smelling jasmine arbor, he was in unusually good spirits, and not, as was generally the case, overflowing with sarcasm and irony, but in a gentle and almost soft and melting mood. Cousin, he began, I don't know how it is, but I feel so nice and warm and comfortable all over today. I have not felt like it for many years. I believe it is an augury that I should die soon. I exerted myself to drive these gloomy thoughts from his mind. Never mind, cousin, he said. In any case, I am not long for this world, and so I will now discharge a debt I owe you. Do you still remember our autumn in Arblanksitten? This question thrilled through me like a lightning flash. So, before I was able to make any reply, he continued, It was heaven's will that your entrance into that castle should be signalized by memorable circumstances, and that you should become involved against your own will in the deepest secrets of the house. The time has now come when you must learn all. We have often enough talked about things which you, cousin, rather dimly guessed at than really understood. In the alternation of the seasons, nature represents symbolically the cycle of human life. That is a trite remark, but I interpret it differently from everybody else. The dews of spring fall, summer's vapors fade away, and it is the pure atmosphere of autumn which clearly reveals the distant landscape, and then finally earthly existence is swallowed in the night of winter. I mean that the government of the power inscrutable is more plainly revealed in the clear-sightedness of old age. It is granted glimpses of the promised land, the pilgrimage to which begins with the death on earth. How clearly do I see at this moment the dark destiny of that house, to which I am knit by firmer ties than blood relationship can weave. Everything lies disclosed to the eyes of my spirit, and yet the things which I now see in the form in which I see them, the essential substance of them, that is, this I cannot tell you in words, for no man's tongue is able to do so. But listen, my son, I will tell you as well as I am able, and do you think it is some remarkable story that might really happen? and lay up carefully in your soul the knowledge that the mysterious relations into which you ventured to enter, not perhaps without being summoned, might have ended in your destruction. But that's all over now. The history of the Arblank entail, which my old uncle told me, I retain so faithfully in my memory even now that I can almost repeat it in his own words. He spoke of himself in the third person. One stormy night in the autumn of 1760, the servants of our Blanksitten were startled out of the midst of their sleep by a terrific crash, as if the whole of the spacious castle had tumbled into a thousand pieces. In a moment, everybody was on his legs. Lights were lit. The house steward, his face deadly pale with fright and terror, came up panting with his keys. But as they proceeded through the passages and halls and rooms, Sweet after sweet, 
and found all safe and heard in the appalling silence nothing except the creaking rattle of the locks which occasioned some difficulty in opening and the ghost-like echo of their own footsteps they began one and all to be utterly astounded nowhere was there the least trace of damage the old house steward was impressed by an ominous feeling of apprehension he went up into the great knight's hall which had a small cabinet adjoining where freiherr roderick von arblank used to sleep when engaged in making his astronomical observations between the door of this cabinet and that of the second was a postern leading through a narrow passage immediately into the astronomical tower but directly daniel that was the house steward's name opened this postern the storm blustering and howling terrifically drove a heap of rubbish and broken pieces of stones all over him which made him recoil in terror and dropping the candles which went out with a hiss on the floor he screamed oh god oh god the baron he's miserably dashed to pieces at the same moment he heard sounds of lamentation proceeding from the freiherr's sleeping cabinet and on entering it he saw the servants gathered around their master's corpse they had found him fully dressed and more magnificently than on any previous occasion and with a calm earnest look upon his unchanged countenance sitting in his large and richly decorated armchair as though resting after severe study but his rest was the rest of death when day dawned it was seen that the crowning turret of the tower had fallen in the huge square stones had broken through the ceiling and floor of the observatory room and then carrying down in front of them a powerful beam that ran across the tower they had dashed in with redoubled impetus the lower vaulted roof and dragged down a portion of the castle walls and of the narrow connecting passage not a single step could be taken beyond the postern threshold without risk of falling at least eighty feet into a deep chasm the old freiherr had foreseen the very hour of his death and had sent intelligence of it to his sons hence it happened that the very next day saw the arrival of wolfgang freiherr von arblank eldest son of the deceased and now lord of the entail relying confidently upon the probable truth of the old man's foreboding he had left vienna which city he chanced to have reached in his travels immediately he received the ominous letter and hastened to arblanksitten as fast as he could travel the house steward had draped the great hall in black and had had the old freiherr laid out in the clothes in which he had been found on a magnificent state bed and this he had surrounded with tall silver candlesticks with burning wax candles wolfgang ascended the stairs entered the hall and approached close to his father's corpse without speaking a word there he stood with his arms folded on his chest gazing with a fixed and gloomy look and with knitted brows into his father's pale countenance he was like a statue not a tear came from his eyes at length with an almost convulsive movement of the right arm towards the corpse he murmured hoarsely did the stars compel you to make the son whom you loved miserable throwing his hands behind his back and stepping a short pace backwards the baron raised his eyes upwards and said in a low and well-nigh broken voice poor infatuated old man your carnival farce with its shallow delusions is now over now you no doubt see 
that the possessions which have so niggardly dealt out to us here on earth have nothing in common with hereafter beyond the stars. What will, what power can reach over beyond the grave? The Baron was silent again for some seconds. Then he cried passionately, No! Your perversity shall not rob me of a grain of my earthly happiness, which you strove so hard to destroy. And therewith he took a folded paper out of his pocket and held it up between two fingers to one of the burning candles that stood close beside the corpse. The paper was caught by the flame and blazed up high, and as the reflection flickered and played upon the face of the corpse, it was as though its muscles moved, and as though the old man uttered toneless words, so that the servants who stood some distance off were filled with great horror and awe. The baron, calmly finished what he was doing by carefully stamping out with his foot the last fragment of paper that fell on the floor blazing. Then, casting yet another moody glance upon his father, he hurriedly left the hall. On the following day, Daniel reported to the Freiherr the damage that had been done to the tower, and described at great length all that had taken place on the night when their dear dead master died, and he concluded by saying that it would be a very wise thing to have the tower repaired at once, for if a further fall were to take place, there would be some danger of the whole castle, well, if not tumbling down, at any rate suffering serious damage. Repair the tower? The Freiherr interrupted the old servant curtly, whilst his eyes flashed with anger. Repair the tower? Never! Never! Don't you see, old man, he went on more calmly, don't you see that the tower could not fall in this way without some special cause? How if it was my father's own wish that the place where he carried on his unhallowed astrological labors should be destroyed? How if he had himself made certain preparations by which he was enabled to bring down the turret whenever he pleased, and so occasion the ruin of the interior of the tower? But be that as it may, and if the whole castle tumbles down, I shan't care. I shall be glad. Do you imagine I am going to dwell in this weird owl's nest? No. My wise ancestor who had the foundations of a new castle laid in the beautiful valley yonder, he has begun a work which I intend to finish. Daniel said, crestfallen, Then will all your faithful old servants have to take up their bundles and go? that I am not going to be waited upon by helpless, weak-kneed old fellows like you is quite certain. But for all that, I shall turn none away. You may all enjoy the bread of charity without working for it. And am I, cried the old man, greatly hurt, am I, the house steward, to be forced to lead such a life of inactivity? Then the Freiherr, who had turned his back upon the old man and was about to leave the room, wheeled suddenly round his face perfectly ablaze with passion, strode up to the old man as he stretched out his doubled fist towards him, and shouted in a thundering voice, You, you hypocritical old villain! It's you who helped my father in his unearthly practices up yonder. You lay upon his heart like a vampire. And perhaps it was you who basely took advantage of the old man's mad folly to plant in his mind those diabolical ideas which brought me to the brink of ruin. I ought, I tell you, to kick you out like a mangy cur. 
the old man was so terrified at these harsh terrible words that he threw himself upon his knees beside the freiherr but the baron as he spoke these last words threw forward his right foot perhaps quite unintentionally as is frequently the case in anger when the body mechanically obeys the mind and what is in the thought is imitatively realized in action and hit the old man so hard on the chest that he rolled over with a stifled scream rising painfully to his feet and uttering a most singular sound like the howling whimper of an animal wounded to death he looked the freiherr through and through with a look that glared with mingled rage and despair the purse of money which the freiherr threw down as he went out of the room the old man left lying on the floor where it fell meanwhile all the nearest relatives of the family who lived in the neighbourhood had arrived and the old freiherr was interred with much pomp in the family vault in the church at arbrancsitten and now after the invited guests had departed the new lord of the gentale appeared to shake off his gloomy mood and to be prepared to duly enjoy the property that had fallen to him along with v the old freiherr's justiciarius who won his full confidence in the very first interview they had and who was at once confirmed in his office the baron made an exact calculation of his sources of income and considered how large a part he could devote to making improvements and how large a part to building a new castle v was of opinion that the old freiherr could not possibly have spent all his income every year and that there must certainly be money concealed somewhere since he had found nothing amongst his papers except one or two banknotes for insignificant sums and the ready money in the iron safe was but very little more than a thousand dollars or about one hundred fifty pounds who would be so likely to know anything about it as daniel who in his obstinate self-willed way was perhaps only waiting to be asked about it the baron was now not a little concerned at the thought that daniel whom he had so grossly insulted might let large sums moulder somewhere sooner than discover them to him not so much of course from any motives of self-interest for what use could even the largest sum of money be to him a childless old man whose only wish was to end his days in the castle of arblanksitten as from a desire to take vengeance for the affront put upon him he gave v a circumstantial account of the entire scene with daniel and concluded by saying that from several items of information communicated to him he had learned that it was daniel alone who had contrived to nourish in the old freiherr's mind such an inexplicable aversion to ever seeing his sons in arblanksitten the justiciarius declared that this information was perfectly false since there was not a human creature on the face of the earth who would have been able to guide the freiherr's thoughts in any way far less determine them for him and he undertook finally to draw from daniel the secret if he had one as to the place in which they would be likely to find money concealed his task proved far easier than he had anticipated for no sooner did he begin but how comes it daniel that your old master has left so little ready money then daniel replied with a repulsive smile do you mean the few trifling tallers herr justiciarius which you found in the little strong box oh the rest is lying in the vault beside our gracious master's sleeping cabinet but the best he went on to say whilst his smile passed over into an abominable grin and his eyes flashed with malicious fire but the best of all several thousand gold pieces lies buried at the bottom of the chasm beneath the ruins 
that Justice Charius at once summoned the Freiherr. They proceeded there, and then into the sleeping cabinet, where Daniel pushed aside the wainscot in one of the corners, and a small lock became visible. Whilst the Freiherr was regarding the polished lock with covetous eyes, and making preparations to try and unlock it, with the keys of the great bunch which he dragged with some difficulty out of his pocket, Daniel drew himself up to his full height, and looked down with almost malignant pride upon his master, who had now stooped down in order to see the lock better. Daniel's face was deadly pale, and he said, his voice trembling, If I am a dog, my lord Freiherr, I have also at least a dog's fidelity. Therewith, he held out a bright steel key to his master, who greedily snatched it out of his hand, and with it he easily succeeded in opening the door. They stepped into a small and low-vaulted apartment, in which stood a large iron coffer, with the lid open, containing many money-bags, upon which lay a strip of parchment, written in the old Freiherr's familiar handwriting, large and old-fashioned. One hundred and fifty thousand imperial thalers in old Frederick's door. Note. Imperial thalers varied in value at different times, but estimating their value at three shillings, the sum here mentioned would be equivalent to about twenty-two thousand five hundred pounds. The Frederick door was a gold coin worth five thalers. Return to text. Money saved from the revenues of the estate tale of our blank sitten. This sum has been set aside for the building of the castle. Further, the lord of the entail who succeeds me in the possession of this money shall, upon the highest hill situated eastward from the old tower of the castle, which he will find in ruins, erect a high beacon tower for the benefit of mariners, and cause a fire to be kindled on it every night. Our blank sitten on Michaelmas Eve of the year 1760. Roderick. Freiherr von Ahr. The Freiherr lifted up the bags one after the other and let them fall again into the coffer, delighted at the ringing clink of so much gold coin. Then he turned round abruptly to the old house steward, thanked him for the fidelity he had shown, and assured him that they were only vile, tattling calumnies which had induced him to treat him so harshly in the first instance. He should not only remain in the castle, but should also continue to discharge his duties uncurtailed in any way as house-steward, and at double the wages he was then having. I owe you a large compensation. If you will take money, help yourself to one of these bags. As he concluded with these words, the baron stood before the old man, with his eyes bent upon the ground, and pointed to the coffer. Then, approaching it again, he once more ran his eyes over the bags. A burning flush suddenly mounted into the old house-steward's cheeks, and he uttered that awful howling whimper, a noise as of an animal wounded to death, according to the Freiherr's previous description of it to the Justicarius. The latter shuddered, for the words which the old man murmured between his teeth sounded like, Blood for gold. Of all this, the Freiherr, absorbed in the contemplation of the treasure before him, had heard not the least. Daniel tottered in every limb, as if shaken by an ague fit. Approaching the Freiherr with bowed head and a humble attitude, he kissed his hand, and, drawing his handkerchief across his eyes under the pretense of wiping away his tears, said in a whining voice, 
alas my good and gracious master what am i a poor childless old man to do with money but the doubled wages i accept with gladness and will continue to do my duty faithfully and zealously the freiherr who had paid no particular heed to the old man's words now let the heavy lid of the coffer fall to with a bang so that the whole room shook and cracked and then locking the coffer and carefully withdrawing the key he said carelessly very well very well old man but after they entered the hall he went on talking to daniel but you said something about a quantity of gold pieces buried underneath the ruins of the tower silently the old man stepped towards the postern and after some difficulty unlocked it but so soon as he threw it open the storm drove a thick mass of snowflakes into the hall a raven was disturbed and flew in croaking and screaming and dashed with its black wings against the window but regaining the open postern it disappeared downwards into the chasm the freiherr stepped out into the corridor but one single glance downwards and he started back trembling a fearful sight i'm giddy he stammered as he sank almost fainting into the justiciarius's arms but quickly recovering himself by an effort he fixed a sharp look upon the old man and asked down there you say meanwhile the old man had been locking the postern and was now leaning against it with all his bodily strength and was gasping and grunting to get the great key out of the rusty lock this at last accomplished he turned round to the baron and changing the huge key about backwards and forwards in his hands replied with a peculiar smile yes there are thousands and thousands down there all oh, my dear dead master's beautiful instruments telescopes quadrants globes dark mirrors they all lie smashed to atoms underneath the ruins between the stones and the big bog but money coined money interrupted the baron you spoke of gold pieces old man i only meant things which had cost several thousand gold pieces he replied and not another word could be got out of him the baron appeared highly delighted to have all at once come into possession of all the means requisite for carrying out his favourite plan namely that of building a new and magnificent castle the justiciarius indeed stated it as his opinion that according to the will of the deceased the money could only be applied to the repair and complete finishing of the interior of the old castle and further any new erection would hardly succeed in equalling the commanding size and the severe and simple character of the old ancestral castle the freiherr however persisted in his intention and maintained that in the disposal of property respecting which nothing was stated in the deeds of the entail the irregular will of the deceased could have no validity he at the same time led v to understand that he should conceive it to be his duty to embellish r as far as the climate soil and environs would permit for it was his intention to bring home shortly as his dearly loved wife a lady who was in every respect worthy of the greatest sacrifices the air of mystery with which the freiherr spoke of this alliance which possibly had been already consummated in secret cut short all further questions from the side of the justiciarius 
Nevertheless, he found in it to some extent a redeeming feature, for the Freiherr's eager grasping after riches now appeared to be due not so much to avarice, strictly speaking, as to the desire to make one dear to him forget the more beautiful country she was relinquishing for his sake. Otherwise, he could not acquit the baron of being avaricious, or at any rate insufferably close-fisted, seeing that, even though rolling in money and even when gloating over the old Frederick's door, he could not help bursting out with the peevish grumble, I know the old rascal has concealed from us the greatest part of his wealth, but next spring I will have the ruins of the tower turned over under my own eyes. The Freiherr had architects come, and discussed with them at great length what would be the most convenient way to proceed with his castle building. He rejected one drawing after another. In none of them was the style of architecture sufficiently rich and grandiose. He now began to draw plans himself, and, inspirited by this employment, which constantly placed before his eyes a sunny picture of the happiest future, brought himself into such a genial humour that it often bordered on wild exuberance of spirits, and even communicated itself to all about him. His generosity and profuse hospitality belied all imputations of avarice, at any rate. Daniel also seemed to have now forgotten the insult that had been put upon him. Towards the Freiherr, although often followed by him with mistrustful eyes on account of the treasure buried in the chasm, his bearing was both quiet and humble. But what struck everybody as extraordinary was that the old man appeared to grow younger from day to day. Possibly this might be because he had begun to forget his grief for his old master, which had stricken him sore, and possibly also because he had not now, as he once had, to spend the cold nights in the tower without sleep, and got better food and good wine, such as he liked. But whatever the cause might be, the old grey beard seemed to be growing into a vigorous man with red cheeks and well-nourished body, who could walk firmly and laugh loudly whenever he heard a jest to laugh at. The pleasant tenor of life at Arblanxitten was disturbed, by the arrival of a man whom one would have judged to be quite in his element there. This was Wolfgang's younger brother, Hubert, at the sight of whom Wolfgang had screamed out, with his face as pale as a corpse's, Unhappy wretch, what do you want here? Hubert threw himself into his brother's arms, but Wolfgang took him and led him away up to a retired room, where he locked himself in with him. They remained closeted several hours, at the end of which time Hubert came down, greatly agitated, and called for his horses. The Justiciarius intercepted him. Hubert tried to pass him, but V. Blank, inspired by the hope that he might perhaps stifle in the bud what might else end in a bitter lifelong quarrel between the brothers, besought him to stay at least a few hours, and at the same moment the Freiherr came down, calling, Stay here, Hubert. You will think better of it. Hubert's countenance cleared up. He assumed an air of composure, and, quickly pulling off his costly fur coat and throwing it to a servant behind him, he grasped V. Blank's hand and went with him into the room, saying with a scornful smile, So, the lord of the entail will tolerate my presence here, it seems. V. Blank thought that the unfortunate misunderstanding would assuredly be smoothed away now, for it was only separation and existence apart from each other that would, he conceived, be able to foster it. 
Hubert took up the steel tongs which stood near the fire grate, and as he proceeded to break up a knotty piece of wood that would only sweal, not burn, and to rake the fire together better, he said to Viblank, You see what a good-natured fellow I am, Herr Justicarius, and that I am skilful in all domestic matters. But Wolfgang is full of the most extraordinary prejudices, and a bit of a miser. Viblank did not deem it advisable to attempt to fathom further the relations between the brothers, especially as Wolfgang's face and conduct and voice plainly showed that he was shaken to the very depths of his nature by diverse violent passions. Late in the evening, Viblank had occasion to go up to the Freiherr's room in order to learn his decision about some matter or other connected with the estate tale. He found him pacing up and down the room, with long strides, his arms crossed on his back, and much perturbation in his manner. On perceiving the Justicarius, he stood still, and then, taking him by both hands, and looking him gloomily in the face, he said in a broken voice, My brother is come. I know what you are going to say, he proceeded almost before Viblank had opened his mouth to put a question. Unfortunately, you know nothing. You don't know that my unfortunate brother, yes, I will not call him anything worse than unfortunate, that like a spirit of evil he crosses my path everywhere, ruining my peace of mind. It is not his fault that I have not been made unspeakably miserable. He did his best to make me so, but heaven willed it otherwise. Ever since he has known of the conversion of the property into an entail, he has persecuted me with deadly hatred. He envies me this property, which in his hands would only be scattered like chaff. He is the wildest spendthrift I ever heard of. His load of debt exceeds by a long way the half of the unentailed property in Courland that fell to him. And now, pursued by his creditors, who fail not to worry him for payment, he hurries here to me to beg for money. And you, his brother, refuse to give him any? B. Blank was about to interrupt him. But the Freiherr, letting the Blank's hands fall and taking a long step backwards, went on in a loud and vehement tone, Stop! Yes, I refuse. I neither can nor will give away a single taller of the revenues of the entail. But listen, and I will tell you what was the proposal which I made the insane fellow a few hours ago, and made in vain, and then passed judgment upon the feelings of duty by which I am actuated. Our unentailed possessions in Courland are, as you are aware, considerable. The half that falls to me I am willing to renounce, but in favor of his family. For Hubert has married, in Courland, a beautiful lady, but poor. She and the children she has borne him are starving. The estates should be put under trust. Sufficient should be set aside out of the revenues to support him, and his creditors be paid by arrangement. But what does he care for a quiet life, a life free of anxiety? What does he care for wife and child? Money, ready money, and large quantities is what he will have, that he may squander it in infamous folly. Some demon has made him acquainted with the secret of the hundred and fifty thousand dollars, half of which he in his mad way demands, maintaining that this money is movable property and quite apart from the entailed portion. This, however, I must and will refuse him, but the feeling haunts me that he is plotting my destruction in his heart. 
no matter how great the efforts which v made to persuade the freiherr out of this suspicion against his brother in which of course not being initiated into the more circumstantial details of the disagreement he could only appeal to broad and somewhat superficial moral principles he could not boast of the smallest success the freiherr commissioned him to treat with his hostile and avaricious brother hubert v proceeded to do so with all the circumspection he was master of and was not a little gratified when hubert at length declared be it so then i will accept my brother's proposals but upon condition that he will now since i am on the point of losing both my honour and my good name for ever through the severity of my creditors make me an advance of a thousand frederick's door in hard cash and further grant that in time to come i may take up my residence at least for a short time occasionally in our beautiful r sitten along with my good brother never never exclaimed the freiherr violently when v laid his brother's amended counter-proposals before him i will never consent that hubert stay in my house even a single minute after i have brought home my wife go my good friend tell this mar piece that he shall have two thousand frederick's door not as an advance but as a gift only bid him go bid him go v now learned at one and the same time that the ground of the quarrel between the two brothers must be sought for in this marriage hubert listened to the justiciarius proudly and calmly and when he finished speaking replied in a hoarse and hollow tone i will think it over but for the present i shall stay a few days in the castle v exerted himself to prove to the discontented hubert that the freiherr by making over his share of the unentailed property was really doing all he possibly could do to indemnify him and that on the whole he had no cause for complaint against his brother although at the same time he admitted that all institutions of the nature of primogeniture which vested such preponderant advantages in the eldest born to the prejudice of the remaining children were in many respects hateful hubert tore his waistcoat open from top to bottom like a man whose breast was cramped and he wanted to relieve it by fresh air thrusting one hand into his open shirt frill and planting the other in his side he spun round on one foot in a quick pirouette and cried in a sharp voice shock what is hateful is born of hatred then bursting out into a shrill fit of laughter he said what condescension my lord of the entail shows in being thus willing to throw his gold pieces to the poor beggar v saw plainly that all idea of a complete reconciliation between the brothers was quite out of the question to the freiherr's annoyance hubert established himself in the rooms that had been appointed for him in one of the side wings of the castle as if with a view to a very long stay he was observed to hold frequent and long conversations with the house-steward nay the latter was sometimes even seen to accompany him when he went out wolf-hunting otherwise he was very little seen and studiously avoided meeting his brother alone at which the latter was very glad v felt how strained and unpleasant this state of things was and was obliged to confess to himself that the peculiar uneasiness which marked all that hubert both said and did was such as to destroy intentionally and effectually all the pleasure of the place he now perfectly understood why the freiherr had manifested so much alarm on seeing his brother 
One day, as V. Blank was sitting by himself in the justice room amongst his law papers, Hubert came in with a grave and more composed manner than usual, and said in a voice that bordered upon melancholy, I will accept my brother's last proposals. If you will contrive that I have the two thousand Frederick's door to-day, I will leave the castle this very night, on horseback, alone. With the money? asked V. Blank. You are right, replied Hubert. I know what you would say, the weight. Give it me in bills on Isaac Lazarus of K. Blank, for to K. Blank I am going this very night. Something is driving me away from this place. The old fellow is bewitched with evil spirits. Do you mean your father, Herr Baron? asked V. Blank sternly. Hubert's lips trembled. He had to cling to the chair to keep from falling. But then, suddenly recovering himself, he cried, "'Today, then, please, Herr Justicarius,' and staggered to the door, not, however, without some exertion. He now sees that no deceptions are any longer of avail. "'That he can do nothing against my firm will,' said the Freiherr, whilst drawing up the bills on Isaac Lazarus in K-Blank. A burden was lifted off his heart by the departure of his inimical brother, and for a long time he had not been in such cheerful spirits as he was at supper. Hubert had sent his excuses, and there was not one who regretted his absence. The room which V. Blank occupied was somewhat retired, and its windows looked upon the castle yard. In the night he was suddenly startled up out of his sleep, and was under the impression that he had been awakened by a distant and pitiable moan. But listen as he would, all remained still as the grave, and so he was obliged to conclude that the sound which had fallen upon his ears was the delusion of a dream. But at the same time, he was seized with such a peculiar feeling of breathless anxiety and terror that he could not stay in bed. He got up and approached the window. It was not long, however, before the castle door was opened and a figure with a blazing torch came out of the castle and went across the courtyard. B. Blank recognized the figure as that of old Daniel and saw him open the stable door and go in, and soon afterwards bring out a saddle-horse. Now a second figure came into view out of the darkness, well wrapped in furs, and with a fox-skin cap on his head. V. Blank perceived that it was Hubert, but after he had spoken excitedly with Daniel for some minutes, he returned into the castle. Daniel led back the horse into the stable and locked the door, and also that of the castle, after he had returned across the courtyard in the same way in which he crossed it before. It was evident Hubert had intended to go away on horseback, but had suddenly changed his mind, and no less evident was it that there was a dangerous understanding of some sort between Hubert and the old house-steward. V. Blank looked forward to the morning with burning impatience. He would acquaint the Freiherr with the occurrences of the night. Really, it was now time to take precautionary measures against the attacks of Hubert's malice, which V. Blank was now convinced had been betrayed in his agitated behavior of the day before. Next morning, at the hour when the Freiherr was in the habit of rising, V. Blank heard people running backwards and forwards, doors opened and slammed to, and a tumultuous confusion of voices talking and shouting. On going out of his room he met servants everywhere, who, without heeding him, ran past him with ghastly pale faces, upstairs, downstairs, in and out the rooms. At length he ascertained that the Freiherr was missing, and that they had been looking for him for hours in vain. As he had gone to bed in the presence of his personal attendant, 
he must have afterwards got up and gone away somewhere in his dressing-gown and slippers, taking the large candlestick with him, for these articles were also missed. B. Blank, his mind agitated with dark forebodings, ran up to the ill-fated hall, the cabinet adjoining which Wolfgang had chosen, like his father, for his own bedroom. The postern leading to the tower stood wide open. With a cry of horror, V. shouted, There! He lies dashed to pieces at the bottom of the ravine! And it was so. There had been a fall of snow, so that all they could distinctly make out from above was the rigid arm of the unfortunate man protruding from between the stones. Many hours passed before the workmen succeeded, at great risk of life, in descending by means of ladders bound together and drawing up the corpse by the aid of ropes. In the last agonies of death, the baron had kept a tight hold upon the silver candlestick. The hand in which it was clenched was the only uninjured part of his whole body, which had been shattered in the most hideous way by rebounding on the sharp stones. Just as the corpse was drawn up and carried into the hall and laid upon the very same spot on the large table where a few weeks before old Roderick had lain dead, Hubert burst in, his face distorted by the frenzy of despair. Quite overpowered by the fearful sight, he wailed, Brother! Oh, my poor brother! No! This I never prayed for from the demons who had entered into me. This suspicious self-exculpation made V. Blank tremble. He felt impelled to proceed against Hubert as the murderer of his brother. Hubert, however, had fallen on the floor senseless. They carried him to bed. But on taking strong restoratives, he soon recovered. Then he appeared in V. Blank's room, pale and sorrow-stricken, and with his eyes half-clouded with grief. And unable to stand, owing to his weakness, he slowly sank down into an easy chair, saying, I have wished for my brother's death, because my father had made over to him the best part of the property, through the foolish conversion of it into an entail. He is now found a fearful death. I am now lord of the estate tale, but my heart is rent with pain. I can... I shall never be happy. I confirm you in your office. You shall be invested with the most extensive powers in respect to the management of the estate, upon which I cannot bear to live. Hubert left the room, and in two or three hours was on his way to K. Blank. It appeared that the unfortunate Wolfgang had got up in the night, probably with the intention of going into the other cabinet, where there was a library. In the stupor of sleep he had mistaken the door, and had opened the postern, taken a step out, and plunged headlong down. But after all had been said, there was nevertheless a good deal that was strained and unlikely in this explanation. If the baron was unable to sleep and wanted to get a book out of the library, this of itself excluded all idea of sleep stupor. But this condition alone could account for any mistaking of the postern for the door of the cabinet. Then again, the former was fast locked and required a good deal of exertion to unlock it. These improbabilities V. Blank accordingly put before the domestics, who had gathered round him, and at length the Freiherr's body-servant, Francis by name, said, Nay, nay, my good Herr Justicarius, it couldn't have happened in that way. Well, how then? asked V. Blank, abruptly and sharply. 
but francis a faithful honest fellow who would have followed his master into his grave was unwilling to speak out before the rest he stipulated that what he had to say about the event should be confided to the justiciarius alone in private v now learned that the freiherr used often to talk to francis about the vast treasure which he believed lay buried beneath the ruins of the tower and also that frequently at night as if goaded by some malicious fiend he would open the postern the key of which daniel had been obliged to give him and would gaze with longing eyes down into the chasm where the supposed riches lay there was now no doubt about it on that ill-omened night the freiherr after his servant had left him must have taken one of his usual walks to the postern where he had been most likely suddenly seized with dizziness and had fallen over daniel who also seemed much upset by the freiherr's terrible end thought it would be a good thing to have the dangerous postern walled up and this was at once done end of part three of the end tale recording by thomas copeland